Each week we come to the Word of God and we see great precious promises for us. In this age and in the age to come, we see instruction. How to live the Christian life. We get to know God. We see a transformative power. We, we sense it. We also see rebukes, corrections for us. One of the things we often may take for granted, though, when we come to this book with 66 books and 40-some-odd authors, we see a story. We see one singular story written by God. And if you had to title the story, I would title it, and I'm going to rhyme here, so there's some rhyming in the sermon, so you better get ready. A redemption story for God's glory. And many will say one of the underlying themes in this redemption story is love. It's a love story to some extent. But this redemption story God has authored. And a literary device in literature is called foreshadowing. You pick up a book and you will see foreshadowing. What is foreshadowing? We see it in the Bible. Foreshadowing is something that prepares us for something to come. Typically, suggestion of something that lies ahead. And you'll often see foreshadowing maybe in the beginning of a chapter. It's a hint of something to come, and very often something greater. And something most significant to the plot, the story. Now, I've shared this in chapter 3. For me, I often see the Word of God as a story as if it were a play. Now, I've shared this before. Act 1 we see in the Old Covenant. And now, I want you to picture the curtain opens, and we see figures, types. But something is different. The lights are not very bright. It's very dim. And we can make out types. We can make out shadows. We see a storyline, but it's not all that clear. But now when we get to phase two, part two, Jesus Christ emerges and the lights go on. And now a lot of things that were hidden that we couldn't really understand were not really kind of concealed are now unveiled. For example, see the Passover. Passover lamb ultimately pointed to Christ. That's a foreshadowing. We also see a foreshadowing in the bronze serpent. That pointed to Christ as well. We also see in the Word of God spiritual realities in the earthly realm. We see earthly truth, a reality, also taking on a greater significance of a heavenly reality to come. And today we're going to see that as we look at this union between Jesus Christ and the church. This union between the groom and the bride. Now thus far we have looked at marriage. And we're going to see an unveiling of the marriage of Christ and the church. We have looked at marriage from the earthly realm. We looked at God's mandate that a man and woman should come together and be one flesh. We looked at instructions for husbands and wife. But as we open up with this morning, I'm going to look at it now. I want you to see something very significant. In Ephesians 5, to 23, we see multiple comparisons and metaphors as 
as Christ loved the church. We see Christ and the church in this relational aspect. Just open up your Bibles to, to, to 22, 522. And I want to look at this, and I want you to see this for yourself. As it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. We looked at that last time I was with you. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church, his bride, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as, just as, Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now we look at today's text, 31 to 33. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. Now, verses 31 to 32, we're going to look at a shadow of things that were to come and things that will come. In verse 33, we're going to look at present instructions and promises. Shadow of things that were to come and will come for the bride of Christ. Verse 33, present instructions and promises for the bride of Christ. Now, verse 31, does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound familiar? This is God's mandate, his pre-fall mandate. And the same, he holds to this heavenly reality post-fall. And this reality that we see in verse 31 ultimately foreshadows something greater than just man and woman. Something greater to come. I'm going to read verses 31 to 32. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. This is the horizontal earthly realm. And the two shall become one flesh. Amen. We have looked at that. But now notice, notice what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 32, is going to write. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. This is a union that we now have. How many times in Ephesians, how many times in the New Testament do you see the phrase, in Christ, in Him? Multiple times. This is a very present reality that we are in Christ. And it's a very present reality that I am one with Gloria. 
We are one flesh, a very present reality. But Paul is speaking about something in the earthly realm pointing to something even greater. He's speaking about the church in Christ as one, becoming united to each other. Now, you may have feelings and, and, and strong feelings for your children, for family members, parents. But according to God, there is no greater relationship than husband and wife in the earthly realm. But there is a greater relationship that is the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, as the husband become one flesh in this age, we are to be married in this age, humanly speaking, but that's where this marriage ceases. Because Jesus would write, at the resurrection, people would neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So what we have here is significant. It's awesome. But it's a foretaste and a foreshadowing of something that is to come. Genesis 2.24, at the time it was written, was pointing to something forward. And Paul now identifies that. Understand the union that you have with Jesus Christ. Christianity is not some, just some religion where we're following traditions and religious protocols. We are one in Christ. Do you understand that? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. This is hard to fathom, but this is a reality. Christ in us, the hope of glory that we have. This was not previously known. This was concealed. Now we see in verse 32, the mystery is great. What mystery? I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. This word, the mystery, is great. It's profound. Mystery is compared to the union of man and woman now, to Christ and the church as something great. Now, why was this a mystery, and what do we mean by mystery? Well, mystery is used six times in Ephesians, and it's speaking about things that were previously hidden, things that were concealed. Not necessarily a mystery that we would think about maybe in a novel. These were things that were not fully revealed, but now have been revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. But there are more things that will be concealed that we see. Now, at the beginning of the letter, Paul will say about the gospel, the gospel, that God was making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ and plan in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ is going to come back and reconcile all things in heaven and earth. And the gospel was foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15 as well. One of the contexts, really, for our passage is in chapter 3, which we looked at. Now, Paul would write, you could perceive the insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in generations past, but now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, Isaiah 53 when he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace would be upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, that was a foreshadow 
of the gospel and of the Christ. Now, it's very important as we look at this, we see that there was a hidden plan of God that is now coming to fulfillment. In Ephesians, we see several things, the gospel. We see this mystery of the Gentiles being part of that, which we'll look at in a minute. But I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Who is the church? The church is the body of Christ. Those who have been engrafted into the vine, born again of an incorruptible seed, all those everywhere, not just Tauntonville, all those around the world, not just the saints of this age, but the saints of old as well. And Christ is the head of the church. And the plan of having this multi-ethnic church, this multi-ethnic bride, was concealed to some extent in the Old Testament. Now, I want to look at the origin of this mystery. And we'll look at this bride in a minute. But this whole plan, you see, life can often seem random. That God is just responding based upon what we did. It's like like for us, we often see things happen and we just respond. This is not how God is. God doesn't learn anything. You're not here because you were a B plan for some reason. In chapter 1, we get things straight. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us. So this is very, very important. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ was going to be the Father, Son, and Spirit were going to give Jesus Christ a bride, a multi-ethnic bride. This was foreshadowed where? In Hosea. Hosea 2.23. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. A foreshadowing of the bride, which would include Rahab, Ruth. The Ninevites, a foreshadowing. A very prominent theme in Ephesians, that we would be one, he would now have one new man in Christ. One new man in Christ. And we see glimpses now of this husband and wife motif in the Old Testament as well. The prophet Isaiah, very prominent in his writings, because he would often call Yahweh, depict Yahweh as a husband, and Israel as the bride. For example, Isaiah 54.5 For your husband is your maker, speaking to Israel, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your husband is your maker and Redeemer. Okay. 62.5 Isaiah As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. A foreshadowing and a precursor. And certainly we see it in Isaiah 61.10. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 16. And certainly Hosea. Hosea that Yahweh would be a husband to an adulterous, unfaithful wife. Gomer, speaking of Israel, a foreshadowing as well. And Jeremiah, very important scripture. Jeremiah 31.31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and David. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand, but bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. In the old covenant, there was unfaithfulness, there was breakups, there was... uh, There were peaks and valleys in God's redemptive plan. But in this new and better covenant, the Jew, the Gentile, and all, God will choose for himself a people, his own people. And they will not be, he will be faithful because he will never leave them nor forsake them. Now we see when the lights get on in the New Testament, Jesus is now espousing these words about the church being his bride. Where do we see that? We see it in Mark 2.19. Jesus was with his disciples, and he answered a question about fasting. I'll bring you back to this. You may recall this. And he, and he said this, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day... They will fast. So Jesus is calling himself now the bridegroom. He's disclosing this. And we also see that John the Baptist would say something very similar. He, John the Baptist would present himself kind of like the best man here. A friend who attends the bridegroom, which is the person he would call. Now John said this in John 3.29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly, the bridegroom's voice. So we see something now coming to fruition. Jesus is designating, John is designating that Christ is the bride. So we look back in Genesis 2.24, and we see that this was a foreshadowing. But you've got to go back before Genesis to understand the origin of this mystery. This mystery is found in what we would call the covenant redemption. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would would call and elect a people before the foundation of the world. This is indeed a foreshadowing. So, now before the foundation of the world, the plan is in place that Jesus Christ would be given a people. And you know what's very analogous to what we see in chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are Bible commentators, and I think it's definitely worthy to mention, that the foreshadowing is a picture of Christ leaving his father and Christ being joined to his bride as well. He would condescend and come to this earth in the incarnation to fulfill this eternal covenant of redemption. That is unbreakable. It is not like the old covenant. And now the church and Christ are united. And every single person that makes up the collective bride was handpicked and selected. In and of ourselves, we were not the best of the best. We were not the most beautiful or anything like that. But Christ handpicked, Father, Son, Spirit, handpicked and selected you to be part of this bride. And marriage between man and woman is simply a foretaste of something that is to come. So a shadow of things that were to come, we see in Genesis, we also see a shadow of things to come. 
We get a glimpse of it in the scriptures, but we do not see it fully. Consider what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3.12, speaking about the mystery. There is a present unveiling, but it's not yet full. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. When we see Christ face to face, there will be the greater mystery even more revealed. Understand that this was an arranged marriage. It's a mixed marriage, and it was an arranged marriage. And what's in store for the bride now? We're kind of like in a betrothal period. Because though we have this union, the marriage will be further consummated. Do you know that there will be a marriage ceremony? We go outside of Ephesians to see that. We see that in Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 to 9. John writes, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Looking into the future, his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who in, are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you invited to this marriage supper? You might have gone to some pretty amazing weddings in your life, and we can see the celebrities and the weddings they have, they all fail in comparison to what this will be. Have you been invited to this? If you have, there is a formal attire. There is an attire, there is clothes that you must wear. It's not a tuxedo or a suit. It's a robe. It's a robe of righteousness. Only Christ can give you this attire, and this is the only acceptable attire to get into this wedding. So, the marriage supper comes as a great meal. You know, often when I go to weddings, I prefer the appetizers more than the main course. And I prefer Gloria. I love Gloria. But I realize that my marriage is simply an appetizer of the main course that is to come. This is such an amazing calling that we have, but it's only a foreshadowing of what is to come. At the second coming of Christ, He will reconcile all things in heaven and earth And there will be this consummation. Now, where will this consummation be? It'll be in a place called the new heavens and the new earth. A pretty amazing place. And you could see that in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. And I'll I'll read it for you. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her. This is not the bride. It's a depiction of the bride. The New Jerusalem also referred to as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and alludes to Christ and the church. And it speaks about, it's a place where there is holiness, there is purity, and these garments of righteousness are part of this place. This is the glorified state. And many of us will say, come Lord Jesus, this, we want this. And we see this because we see the insanity of this world. We see the chaos. We see the evil. And we want to get out of here. 
But might I suggest today for myself and for us, we ought to have this eagerness. And we say, come Lord Jesus, because we want Jesus. We want to be with him. We want to see him face to face. And it's a, it's a glorious reminder for all of us now. We are not what we shall be. Please understand that. Because what do we read in verse 27? Chapter 5, verse 27. That he may present Jesus Christ. Remember, he's doing a makeover. There is a massive makeover going on right now. With his bride. That he may present himself to church. In all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she will be holy and blameless. What the bride will be is not what it is now. Praise God in this age to come. The great mystery that the two shall become one flesh is pointing to the marriage of Christ and the church. Praise God. Praise God. This is not so... Something that we must take lightly. But now, now in the present age, what do we do? Well, we long for that, but all members of the bride, all members that are sitting in the church must be ready. Be ready. Be ready. We see the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom. Five were ready, five were not. Five had lamps with oil, five did not. Let's be ready. Also, let's be faithful until he comes for the bride. Be faithful. Consider this to be this betrothal period. A betrothal period in the biblical times, is, it was a lot more of a relationship than we would say today. It was even deeper than an engagement. It was a time where the bride and groom would be separated until the wedding, but the groom would be, and the bride would be getting themselves prepared. They'd be getting to know each other as well. And the responsibility of the bride in that betrothal period was to be faithful. The responsibility of the bride was to be pure. Now for us, as best as possible, we are not pure. We are unholy. We are blameless. But in Christ's righteousness, we have all the above. Understand that. Consider the faithfulness and the purity. Because Paul considers the church in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He refers to the church as a virgin waiting for the bridegroom as we wait. And as I said, we want to be eager. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We want to be eager. We want to be zealous for his coming. Now, until then, we take our part. We play our parts roles on this side of eternity in the here and now. We are to be husbands and love our wives as Christ loved the church and love our wives as ourselves. But we are to ultimately be a husband as unto the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Respect your husbands. But ultimately, you're a wife unto the Lord. And we see the spiritual realities now in our marriages, and for those who are even single, that should be played out in the earthly realm, identifying spiritual truth as well that is to come. Your marriage is now foreshadowing something far superior 
and far greater. Now, as we look at verse 33, I want to look at pre- present instructions and promises for the bride of Christ. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. We saw the admonishment, the command here to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Seems like an impossible task. And it is. It is. But by God's grace, we are being transformed. And it's a type of what we shall be. We see here that love your wife as yourself. And remember, if we go back, I must love my wife, you must love your wife as yourself. Nourishing, cherishing her, and doing what's right for her as if you would do what is right for you. Drawing her to the Lord, knowing that what you need, you are now unified with her. And the two now are one flesh. Now the love of Christ in the church, this also points to the greater reality. I don't think, I know for me, I don't fathom, I can never fathom it fully, but I often reduce the love of Christ for the church. The love he has for the church is astounding. How so that he laid down his life, that he condescended from eternity and came in the incarnation. He accomplished the work 2,000 years ago. And you say, yes, Christ died for me. He loved you then, he loves you now, he will love you in eternity. You see, we tend to beat ourselves up a lot of times when we don't perform our Christianity as we ought. Now, I'm not making any excuses for sin. We should strive for holiness, pursue holiness. But the reality is, folks, that you're going to fall short. And in those times, our mind and our heart can play tricks with us. As to say, wow, the Lord really loved me on Sunday. But now you get into Wednesday, Thursday. He doesn't love me as much because of what I said, what I did. It's like that in, in earthly relationships. You know, people get hot, people get cold. But that's not this relationship. There may be convictions and laying aside sins and weights that you're struggling with. And maybe God will chasten you. That is a form of his love. You may get disappointed with situations. You may get disappointed with what's going on out there. Say, Lord, where are you? What's going on? Have you forgotten about us? No, not at all. You may get frustrated with prayer requests that you prayed, and you're not seeing this as you want. Has the Lord turned his face from me? Well, probably not. Maybe we can grieve the Spirit for a season. But the Lord loves you more than you love Him. And you love the Lord because He what? First? He first loved you. Now the chemistry goes up and down, but you have to kind of come to terms with this love that we see in the Bible. We see it in Christ. It's reflective of the husband's love to some extent. We fall way, way short, by the way. But understand, Paul would write, in chapter 319, in his prayer, that he would ask the Holy Spirit would illuminate this understanding, recognize this love on a deeper level. 
It's, it's an amazing, amazing love. And the love of Christ has not diminished for you. Okay? It is not, it doesn't go up and down. Understand, we encounter situations on this side of eternity, and I want to spend some time on his love, because we need to understand this, that he loves us. We are his bride. Case closed. The situations we encounter, whether it be persecutions, famines, heights or depths that we see in Romans 8, 35, 39. What does Paul conclude? That nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. I want you to read and understand Romans 8.30. When your mind is playing tricks on you, when it comes to the love of Christ, and these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the covenant of redemption. This is an eternal covenant, an unbreakable covenant. Now there's no question in the natural realm we see divorce. We see broken relationships. I grew up, my family was marred in divorce, with the exception of my grandparents. And some of us have come out of divorce. If you're in Christ today, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. But understand that we see people falling in and out of love with the wrong concepts of love. And we often take God's truth and try to, try to reduce it down to human level. No, we have to... Christ condescends and gives us the word, but we must understand that he's greater. His ways are greater than ours. There's no divorce in Christ and the church. This is an unbreakable covenant, and none one in his bride, none of you who are born again, will be lost. John 6, 39 in the ESV. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ is going to do that. Christ doesn't fail. John 10, 28, 29. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, that's the bride, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the love of Christ, the love of God for you, is unconditional in Christ alone, only in Christ, and it's unbreakable. Do you realize that? This one flesh union that you now share is an unbreakable covenant. And it's unveiled that you are the bride of Christ. Praise God. Now, nevertheless, we look at the command as well. and We see the command and we just see some promises. That we are to love. Husbands, love your wives as yourself, which is a command. But we also, instructions, see the promises behind that. Now we look at the second half dealing with the wives. Because Paul now takes the whole the scripture, the three verses, and brings it back now into the earthly realm for human beings. He was speaking of the earthly truths pointing to spiritual realities. Now he speaks about instructions and promises for us. And what we have here in 33, nevertheless, each individual of you is to love his wife, 
even as himself. And now we get to the wife, second half of the verse. And the wife must see that she respects her husband. Now we looked at this exclusively that wives are to submit to the husband as what? As Christ. They submit as Christ to Christ. Now we we see something very significant here as well. In the earthly realm points to the practical. This is about headship. If you recall, I'm not going to go over it again. But Christ is the head of the church and God has ordained the husband to be head of the marriage. Flawed heads, by the way. And we have a duty to bring our wives closer to the Lord. But women, wives, you can do the same thing. You ought to love your husband as well. Respect your husbands. Husbands, you better respect your wives as well. Biblically, you make the case for both. But specifically here, we see something. Christ is the head. Now, submission to headship, which we saw in verses 22 to 24. The church is now the body of Christ, that is to submit. But we see now, back in the earthly realm, to respect. Wives, respect your husbands. To respect and to submit, first of all, starts with a biblical understanding, an attitude before actions. Biblical understanding of the Word of God, heart attitude to be filled with the Spirit, and actions, before the actions. This is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now remember, verses 521 prefaces all all these commands, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You now have, husbands, you have a helpmate that is suitable. Wives, you are suitable for your husband. You certainly want to respect them. And there's many things we could speak about respect here. I can have a whole sermon. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at one area. One area that encompasses two, two things. Two areas to consider. How you speak to your husband. And what you speak. How you speak about him as well. What you say. How you speak to your husband and how you speak about him. Now, I was looking at an article on family life. And the three T's that I came up with here, that they came up with here, is this. Text. Wives, what will you say? Time. When will you say it? And tone. How will you express your words? Now, we've not seen respect yet. We've seen submission. But this is something new, and I'll read it again. How you speak to your husband is very important. I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine yesterday. And he was telling me about when he used to be a teacher in the secular world, we'll call it. And he used to tell me the stories he used to hear about how these wives used to just speak so badly about their husbands. May that not be said of us in the body of Christ. And the same thing for you husbands and myself. May that not be said of us. So, What we will say, the text, the time, when you will say it. Pick the right spot sometimes to say it. And tone, how we express our words. And the same holds true for the husbands. Same thing. Same thing. Love one another. So we said how we speak about them. 
Husbands and wives, in many situations, as I said, we do not want to be speaking negatively. Don't want to be speaking in public. And it happens. It happens. You may say, why are you saying this? This happens. And we don't want to be part about this. So you want to show him respect as you would Christ. He doesn't deserve the respect. He's not a savior. He's not Christ. But as savior of the body. Remember what we're going to see. What we saw earlier, we're going to do all things as unto the Lord. Going forward in chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. We're going to see fathers and mothers as unto the Lord, parent. Employees, employers, you do all of this as unto the Lord. So, in closing... I just want to say marriage of Christ in the church is indeed a shadow of something greater to come. A redemption story for God's glory, but many, many have called this a love story. Can, I guess you can call it that. But let's go with the love story. This ends well for many, but love stories can end tragically. Love is often equated with heartbreak. And this love story for some, there will be worse than heartbreak. There will be a tragic ending for those who are not part of this bride. Jesus Christ is coming again, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, and he will reconcile all things in heaven and earth. And Paul tells us in Thessalonians, when he comes back, for those not in Christ, he calls it a great and terrible day. This is serious. Now Christ will come for his bride and there will be everlasting joy for those who are ready, for those who are dressed for the marriage supper, for those who are wearing his robe of righteousness. Be ready. Be dressed. For all others, there will be a day of judgment. There will be no celebration. I leave you with these words. Behold, the day is soon when the bride shall meet the groom. While many scoff and many doubt, many shall be left out when Jesus Christ comes again. Behold, the day is soon when the bride shall meet the groom. At the sound of the trumpet, he shall appear and there'll be joy. And there will also be agony and fear when Jesus Christ comes again. Behold, the day is soon when the bride shall meet the groom. If you have been given a wedding invitation, be dressed, be ready, and come receive this great salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the intimacy we now share with your Son. We thank you, Heavenly Father, as we have seen, Lord, the promises, the foreshadowing. We've also seen the practical truths and the instruction. And Father, we're asking, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us clarity. Help us grow in this grace. Help us understand this great salvation. Help us understand the marriage supper that awaits us. And help us to be the husband and bride and the Christians, whether single or married, that we're called to be, 
Empower us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.